Well, let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll go ahead. Father, thank you for your grace to us this day and for all the blessings we enjoy through our union with Christ, the free grace of salvation. And we thank you for your watch care and and uh, caring for us and supplying our needs. Uh, we do pray that you'll keep us safe. This is a difficult time for uh, our whole nation and uh, certainly for people who are sick. And we pray that uh, we'll be able to trust you and depend upon you and, and rely upon you and uh, commit everything to you during this period. Bless our time together this evening, we pray in Christ's name, amen. So we're looking at uh, our quiz tonight, and the first question is, William Tyndall produced the first complete English Bible. Almost complete? <laughs> That's false. So th- th- these questions get tricky. Uh, you know, who produced the first complete English Bible? Well, that was... Wycliffe, John Wycliffe, but you know that's in the thirteen. That, that's that's a handwritten Bible. Remember the Old English Bible. You can phrase it different ways. Who completed? What was the first printed Bible? What was the first printed Bible? First, you know, English printed Bible. Well, that wasn't Tyndall, just did the New Testament and parts of the Old Testament, you know, and so you have to get the Coverdale to get the first. So Tyndall just, uh, Tyndall translated from the original language. He's the first person, you know, that we know of who actually printed a Bible or a portion of a Bible who translated from the original Greek, and he did some from the Hebrew and Old Testament. Wycliffe had translated 200 years before from the Latin Vulgate. A handwritten Bible. John Wycliffe was called the morning star of the Reformation. Well, that's true. That is Wycliffe. So the Reformation starts, you know, with Luther, with the 95 Theses at the beginning of the 1500s. But 150 years before, John Wycliffe uh, believed that that the Pope shouldn't be the head of the church. He didn't believe the Mass. He didn't believe in transubstantiation. He believed that people should be able to have the Scriptures. You know, he was, you might say, evangelical. Before we use the term evangelical, even the term evangelical apparently became popular during the Reformation. So, uh, yes, he was. The, he was beginning. There were a number of people before Luther, like John Huss and others, who had ideas about justification by faith or the Bible, the scripture who opposed the Roman Catholic traditions and false ideas about salvation. Three, Tyndall trans, uh, translation included anti-Catholic notes. Yes, it did. That got him into trouble. That was one of the things that just like in our Bibles, many Bibles, we have study Bibles that have notes in them, and we have other Bibles. Of course, a lot of tradition is not to have any notes except just cross-references, you know, and stuff like that. But he had notes, explanatory notes, and many of them were anti-the Pope, uh, anti-Roman Catholic. 
four. The first complete printed English Bible was Matthew's Bible. We got to get our order here straight. It's uh, we look at our order of revivals. It's Coverdale's Bible is the first, fifteen thirty-five. And then Matthew Bible, 1537, and then we'll see the Great Bible. So it's actually Coverdale. So Coverdale was an assistant to Tyndall. Tyndall, you remember, had to flee to Europe in order to translate because there was a ban on translation in English in England. Uh, and so he fled to uh, the Netherlands, he fled to Holland, to Germany. He translated there. Coverdale was there also, and Coverdale <clears throat> took Tyndall's New Testament and part of Tyndall's Pentateuch, and he translated the rest from the Latin and put, a, put forward a complete English Bible. That was Coverdale. And then Matthew was another disciple of Tyndall. He had people who helped him, and Matthew produced his own version, a kind of revision. Henry VIII established the Church of England in 1534. I wasn't so concerned about the date, but that is the correct date, remember? Henry VIII broke away from the Roman Catholic Church, not because he was opposed to the doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church, really, because he wanted a divorce. He wanted a divorce from his wife, Catherine of Aragon, and she had given him a a child, Mary, but he wanted a male child. It was, you know, it was generally believed that only a, a male king could hold the kingdom together. A male, so he wanted, he wanted, and she didn't have any other children, so he wanted a divorce. He wanted the Pope to give him an annulment, really, to annul them. He, he had a reason for an annulment, and normally he would have got it, but the Pope was under the control of Philip of Spain. And Philip was Catherine, Henry's wife, was Philip's aunt. So, you know, Philip didn't want to grant this. He didn't he didn't want to, he didn't want the Pope to grant the divorce. And the Pope was under the control of uh, Charles. I said Philip, I mean Charles, Charles of Hill. So it was political. It was all kind of political. Normally Henry might have gotten that divorce, but he didn't get it. So what could he do? He broke away, established the Church of England with himself as the head of the church <laughs> and uh, the supreme head of the church and the Archbishop of Canterbury granted him a divorce from his wife Catherine he married Anne Boleyn uh, unfortunately Anne did not give him a male child either she gave him Elizabeth and so he cut her head off and married Jane Seymour she did give him a son his third wife. Five, Henry, uh, excuse me, six, Anne Boleyn died in childbirth giving birth to her daughter Mary. I kind of no, told you that already. <laughs> she didn't die in childbirth. <laughs> she got her head cut off. <clears throat> and uh, and uh, her, her daughter was Elizabeth. And uh, so that was the end of Anne. My mother's name, maiden name was Bolin but it's spelled B-O-L-I-N, so she always claimed she was related, you know, to Anne Berlin. Why would you be related to her? I don't know. But So let's look at page 29. We're talking about these Bibles here. 
We talked about Tyndall's New Testament, 1526. And uh, he was they, they brought it into England illegally, sold it in, in England illegally, but people bought it anyway, illegally. People, the religious authorities tried to burn it. And uh, Tyndall was eventually burned at the stake. He was captured by some uh, people in, in uh, near Amsterdam and burned at the stake. Then one of his followers, William uh, Coverdale, uh, produced a complete Bible in English, 1535, the first complete printed English Bible. And then another disciple revised that. And so what did Coverdale do? He just took Tyndall's New Testament and he made a few changes, improvements. He looked at it, he knew Greek, you know, he could improve. Matthew did the same thing, Matthew's Bible. Matthew was not his real name. His real name was John Rogers. But he was afraid to use it. He didn't call it Rogers' Bible. He didn't, he didn't use his real name. He said, it says on the title page, it's translated by uh, Matthew, you know, it did, not translated by John Rogers. He didn't use his real name. Now, eventually, he gets burned at the stake anyway. He, poor guy, you know, he's, he's covered it almost. It's the same. That brings us to 1539, the uh, Great Bible. So now we have come to 1539. Henry VIII has broken away from the Church of England, uh, from the Roman Catholic Church. He set up the Church of England, and he has two powerful men behind him here who are... He has uh, Thomas Cranmer and Thomas Cromwell. Thomas Cranmer is the Archbishop of Canterbury, He's very Protestant in his ideas. Very, you know, like Luther. He's like Calvin. So he's, he's before Calvin, but... So he's very Protestant. Now, Henry is not. <laughs> but these men are, you know, quite Protestant. And they're trying to make the Church of England a Protestant church. They're breaking away from the Roman Catholic Church. But they got to be careful. Thomas Cromwell is one of the king's really key advisors. He's just a man who ran up through the ranks, but he's also got Protestant leanings. He's a very powerful man. He's a king's counselor. So they're trying to they're trying to steer the Church of England that Henry has created here towards the Protestant ideas that are coming out of Europe of Luther and others. That's what they want to do. And uh, so they wanted a Bible to be placed in all the churches. So, in fact, in 1538, Cromwell issued a decree to that effect. Cromwell, Thomas Cromwell. Coverdale's quarto edition was too small for a church Bible, and Matthew's Bible, while a folio edition, contained notes that were too Protestant. Now, what are we talking about here? So, notice this. Books dating from this period are often described in terms of the size of its pages. So they took a large sheet of paper... You know, 15 by 10, 16 by 11, just really larger. And you fold this over. So if you take a piece of paper and you fold it over once, you've created a folio. One fold. You just take a piece of paper, and I don't have a piece here, but you take a piece of paper and you fold it over, you've got a folio edition. And, uh, 
so you you take a piece of paper like this and you make your Bible this size. Now, they use bigger paper. So, as it says here, you've got leaves per sheet. You've got two leaves per sheet, two leaves, right? And you got four printed pages, right? So, you print on this, you got one, two, three, four. And to make your Bible, you just produce more of these things like this. You just produce these and you just bind them together at the end like that. And that's a folio edition. Now you can fold it another time like this. Now you got to cut this. Ultimately, you got to cut this down. But now you've got uh, four leaves per page. You've got eight pages. So if you count, you know, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. You know what I mean? And that's a smaller edition. So you have folio editions, quarto editions, and even on down. So when I say here, uh, they wanted a Bible to be put in the church. And the Bible they wanted in the church was a big Bible. You know, they want an impressive Bible. They don't want some little pocket New Testament, you know. Because this is a Bible you're going to set there on a big table and so forth and read from. And so Coverdale's edition was a quarto edition. It was kind of like this. Now it's bigger because the start off with bigger paper. But it's more like the size of a, one of our Bibles today. And uh, Matthew's Bible was a folio edition, bigger, but it had these notes again that were too Protestant. Henry wouldn't accept that. Now they were Protestants, but they had to please the king. So the Great Bible was was produced. They got Miles Coverdale, who had done Coverdale's Bible, you know, who was one of Tyndall's assistants. They got the Great Bible was a revision of Matthew's Bible by Coverdale. For the first half of the Old Testament, he followed Matthew's Bible. The rest of the Old Testament was simply a revision of his own work in Coverdale's Bible, which also had been followed in Matthew's Bible. It's got its name for its folio size. So the pages here were like 16 and a half by 11. So 16 and a half this way and 11 this way. Big, you know, big, great, you know, we think about those family Bibles, you know how big those family Bibles were, you know, uh, people had in their homes. And it lacked these controversial notes. So it's called the Great Bible because of its size. It's got a picture there of Henry. And uh, on one side is Cromwell, and on the other side is the Archbishop of Canterbury, Cranmer, and various people down here. It's got a note right here in Latin, which just means it's kind of like a copyright note. The Latin is sort of, uh, that is, we only have the privilege of printing this Bible. It's kind of a early copyright. There aren't any exactly, well, there are, there are, there are copyright laws because you can't print anything unless the king allows it. You know, it's, the king permits it. So, you know, that's sort of a copyright law. But it's a huge Bible. It's in this uh, um, black print. Notice there's, there's no verse divisions yet because this is 1539. Verse divisions were invented in 1551 by Robert Estian in his Greek New Testament. 
So they're not in the English Bible yet. It's in this Gothic black letter print here. Um, here's John 3.16 in the Great Bible. So they're not retranslating the Bible. They start with Tyndall. Coverdale comes along, kind of improves on that where he can. Matthew comes along, he improves on that. Coverdale comes along, he get, they just keep improving, trying to improve the Bible. You know, it's not like they start fresh and new or anything like that. There aren't any copyright laws in that sense, you know, that they can't just use what's already there. Then number three here, uh, a second edition was issued in 1540 that contained a preface by Thomas Cranmer. So the Bible was called Cranmer's Bible. Thomas Cranmer, remember, was the Archbishop of Canterbury, we talked about. So sometimes it's called Cranmer's Bible. At the bottom was the statement that says, um, this is the Bible appointed to be the, to, appointed to the use of the churches. This is the Bible appointed to the use of the churches. So here's the first authorized version. We call the King James Version sometimes the authorized version. Where does that idea come from? It starts right here. So this was a Bible. So and Henry VIII went along with this because he's trying to break from the Roman Catholic Church. And one of the distinctives of the Church of England is they're going to have a Bible in every church. Most Catholics never see a Bible, don't think about the Bible. Even priests don't know anything about the Bible. So they're going to have a Bible in every parish, in every church in England. And it's going to be the Great Bible. And this is the one that's appointed to be read in the churches. So the Great Bible is really the first authorized version. Authorized means authorized to be read in the churches of England. Um... So it's the first authorized birth. The clergy were ordered to place a copy in a convenient place. It became so popular that they had to actually put chains on these things to keep people from stealing them. But also they had to issue orders to keep people from reading them during the service. People would read out loud. And they would disturb the service by, by reading. And so they issued a decree. No man shall openly read the Bible or New Testament in the English tongue in any churches or chapels or elsewhere with a loud or high voice, especially during the time of divine service. So that's the Great Bible. And you can see on page 50, 30, I'm sorry, 30, how it compares. I kind of always have a comparison there with the King James to show you that the King James just stands in the tradition of these other Bibles. Well, now let's look at a little history here. From Henry VIII to Elizabeth I. Henry VIII. I say here, the last years of Henry VIII's life marked a turning point from the previous Protestant erection, probably for political reasons. Now, I said Henry was no Protestant, but he went along with a lot of Protestant ideas because he was trying to break from the Roman Catholic. But he got fearful. The Pope had ordered France and Spain to attack England. And in order to show he was an Orthodox Catholic in regard, except in regard to the Pope, Henry had Parliament passed the Six Articles, which affirmed a strict doctrine of transubstantiation. Now, the Church of England today does not hold as transubstantiation. That's a Roman Catholic, the Mass doctrine. But, see, Henry is still 
really just really a Roman Catholic. He just wants to be the head of the church. He likes it because as head of the church, he can confiscate church property, he can get the church taxes. Pope doesn't get the taxes. He doesn't get the money. You know, makes Henry richer and all that. It's got a lot of advantages. So they issue these six articles, which kind of affirm more of a Roman Catholic sort of position. Miles Coverdale fled to Germany. Thomas Cromwell was beheaded in 1540, having fallen out with favor from Cromwell's promoting of Anne of Cleves to be Henry's fourth wife. I'm jumping a little bit ahead here in the history. So Thomas Cromwell, remember, Thomas Cranmer, the Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Cromwell, his really kind of chief counselor, sort of right-hand man, man, he gets to do all the dirty work and everything. And uh, so uh, Henry has Anne Boleyn's head cut off. We'll look at the history more a little here in a second. And he marries Jane Seymour, his third wife. And Jane has a son, finally. His third wife has a son, but she dies in childbirth. So Henry decides he wants another wife, and Cromwell gets this German princess, Anne of Cleves. He kind of ran, these marriages are all arranged for political reasons. But Henry wants a good-looking woman, right? So Cromwell, they have this picture painted of her, and it's the picture comes back. She's a pretty nice-looking woman. But when she shows up in person, Henry doesn't like her. <laughs> so Cromwell, you know, he loses his head <laughs> over this deal uh, that, that happened with, with Anna Cleves. Um, this is the portrait that he got, but apparently it didn't match the portrait uh, that he got. So, uh, in 1543, Parliament passed an act for the advancement of true religion and abolishment of the contrary. It prohibited all manner of books of the Old and New Testament in English being of the crafty, false, and untrue translation of Tyndall and made it a crime to read the Bible to others and for lower-class people to even read it privately. Now, this is crazy, isn't it? You've broken away from the Church of England. You've got an appointed Bible in your churches... It's the great Bible. It's really the work of William Tyndall. Coverdale's assistant. You know, I mean, this is crazy. In 1546, Henry himself issued a proclamation and said, no man or woman of what estate, condition, or degree was to receive, have, take, or keep Tyndall or Coverdale's New Testament. Many of these Bibles were burned publicly, yet the great Bible, which was still the authorized Bible in the churches, was simply a revision of these previous works. You know, it's just wacky there, isn't it? Well, Henry dies in 1547. And here's his line here, first three wives. Catherine of Aragon, his first child, is Mary. Now, she'll eventually become queen. And his second wife, Anne Boleyn, is executed for treason. Uh, she'll eventually become queen, Elizabeth. But Jane Seymour, the third wife, dies in childbirth. She produces a son, Edward VI, King of England. Now, he doesn't last too long, 1547, 1550, uh, 1553, so he doesn't reign too long. And it's too bad. In a way, you look at it, it's too bad because 
Edward uh, Edward is he is tutored and taught under Cranmer and Cromwell, and he's and he really becomes a very strong Protestant, a very strong Protestant. Um, so I say here. Um, he moved the Church of England in a decided Protestant direction. So Henry was, you know, Church of England was really just Roman Catholic. He moves it into a Protestant direction. Coverdale returned from the continent and became a chaplain of the king. In 1553, Edward authorized the 42 articles for the Church of England. So here's sort of the founding articles. The, the, the articles of faith. Our church has articles of faith. We have articles church doctrine. Well, they, the Church of England has these 42 articles. Now, Queen Elizabeth, when she comes to the throne, she, she takes them down to 39, and there are 39 today. So you can go online and read the 39 articles of the Church of England, and they're pretty good. They're pretty good articles. It's just that nobody hardly in the Church of England believes them anymore, but they're, they're pretty good stuff. You know, they're, 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 they're evangelical kind of mostly. Uh, right to the Bible and so forth. So he has these 42 articles. There were no new major Bibles produced during Edward's short reign, but there were 40 editions of early Bibles produced, Tyndall, Coverdale, Matthew, Great Bible. But the Great Bible is still the authorized Bible in the Church of England. Here's Jane Seymour, uh, Edward's mother, who died in childbirth. And this is Edward VI, who had a very short reign, unfortunately. As we look back. So uh, on page uh, 31, Edward uh, VI died in 1553. Here's the line again. So Edward becomes king after Henry, but he dies in 1553, so they have to turn to Mary, his older, his oldest sister. Mary, uh, 1553. Uh, the daughter of Catherine of Aragon, a confirmed Roman Catholic. So remember, Catherine is the Spanish wife of Henry, and she's a Catholic. Of course, Henry's a Catholic too. But Catherine, I mean, during during Edward's reign, Mary sort of pretends to be a Protestant, you know, because you want to keep your you want to keep your head. <laughs> But she's really not. She's really a confirmed Roman Catholic all along. So uh, the reformation of the church was halted and reversed. Mary brought the church back into the Roman Catholic fold with the Pope again becoming the head of the church. The Church of England is dissolved. No Church of England. We're back under the Roman Catholic Church with Mary. John Rogers and Thomas Cranmer. John Rogers, Matthew's Bible. You know the translator of Matthew's Bible. Thomas Cranmer, the Archbishop of Canterbury, who were burned at stake. She's called Bloody Mary because she burned about 300 Protestants. Coverdale, who was only saved by intervention of the King of Denmark, escaped the continent. The Great Bible was allowed to remain in the churches, but no Bibles were printed during Mary's reign. And during her reign, Elizabeth, who is the daughter of Anne Boleyn, she was always afraid of her life. She was afraid she was going to be executed by Mary, and Mary almost did. But Mary dies, as Mary, early on, and she dies, and so then 
Elizabeth comes to the throne. Elizabeth I. The Queen of England today is Elizabeth II. This is Elizabeth I. She has a very long, long reign. Um, 1558 to 1603. Um, in 1559, Parliament uh, passed the New Supremacy Act, which again removed the Church of England from Rome and made Elizabeth the supreme governor of the church. So instead of the supreme head, supreme governor, that's, that's the title of Elizabeth II today, the supreme governor. There is no separation of church and state in England. Remember that. So you don't have the kind of problems like if you go to the University of Michigan and I don't know, I'm just assuming and you run around announcing your Christian faith, evangelical faith to all the professors you might have a little trouble, maybe you wouldn't have any trouble at Oxford or Cambridge you wouldn't have any trouble at all they don't have this kind of secular, they're pretty secular but they don't have that separation because the universities have professors of religion and all that. Now there there's some evangelicals in there, but most of them are getting liberal. You know, it's but it's not quite the same thing we have. We don't they don't have this doctrine that we have of separation of church and state in the Church of England. So she's made head of the church, the, the supreme governor. The doctrinal position of the church was an uneasy compromise between Catholic and Protestant viewpoints. So you've had this tension. Henry was a Catholic. He takes the church out. Edward's Protestant, very Protestant. Mary comes back in. She's Catholic. So in England, you've got these different forces. You've got barons and nobles and, and uh, the aristocrats. Some are very Catholic. Some are very Protestant. And so she engineers what's called the Elizabethan Compromise. The Church of England is like that. Its history is a compromise. That is, in the Church of England, throughout the years, you've had high church Anglicans. Those are people who are just almost like Roman Catholics. They're very high church. Then you've got people like J.I. Packer. You know J.I. Packer, the name? We've got books in our resource center by J.I. Packer. He's a very famous writer. Uh, he's, a, he's a Church of England, Anglican guy. You know. So you've, got, you've had evangelicals. And occasionally the Archbishop of Canterbury... You know, I think about 25 years ago you had an evangelical Archbishop of Canterbury, but now they're pretty much all liberal to the core, you know, and everything. But so the Church of England has had over the years and still has today some evangelical believers in the Church of England. And it goes back to this Elizabethan compromise of Catholic, Protestant, and so forth. So some people were unhappy. Those who wanted to reform or purify the Church of England and bring it more in line with the views of the Protestant Reformation came to be known, came to be called the Puritans. So we talk about the Puritans. This is where the name Puritan comes into history, during the reign of Elizabeth. These were people in the Church of England who didn't like this compromise. They wanted to make, they wanted to get rid of all these Catholic ideas altogether. Any traces of Roman Catholicism in the Roman Catholic Church, all this priestly stuff and everything you know they didn't want that they wanted to purify the church some some of these Puritans eventually separated from the church of England they left the church of England and they went different directions some went over to 
Holland and then took a ship called the Mayflower and came to America at Plymouth. Some of them went back to England and eventually became Baptists. The Baptists, as we know them, came out of this Puritan group eventually in the 1600s. So uh, they were just trying to reform. The Great Bible was still the Bible in the churches. All right, that brings us to the next Bible, Geneva Bible. So we have an authorized Bible in the Church of England. That's the Great Bible. Nothing really changed. Even though the religion changed, even though Mary took the church as a, back to a Roman Catholic church, Elizabeth, you know, Edward was a Protestant church. Elizabeth would come back in with a Protestant church. They, the Great Bible is still the Bible that's authorized to be read in the churches. That brings us to the, what's called the Geneva Bible, 1560. Remember, Elizabeth comes to the throne in 1558. So this is just a couple of years after she comes to the throne, the Geneva Bible. Many Protestants, including Miles Coverdale, had fled to Geneva during Mary's reign. So remember, Edward dies, Mary comes to the throne, and that means the Protestants got to leave England. Well, she put 300 of them. She burned 300 of them. But a lot of them left. Coverdale escaped, you remember. And uh, so they have to leave. And uh, many of them fled to Geneva. Why Geneva? That's where John Calvin is now. John Calvin, his reformation is in Geneva in 1560. So a group of Englishmen were there, exiled, and in 1560, they produced the... uh, they produced the Geneva Bible. So Elizabeth comes to the, to the throne in 1558, they remember. And they produced the Geneva Bible in 1560. Another English Bible. Uh, the principal translator was a man by the name of William Whittingham. He was another refugee from Mary's persecutions. So he was a Protestant Englishman who left when Mary came to the throne because she was burning at the stake, you know, Protestants who spoke out. He had married John Calvin's sister, perhaps his sister-in-law, we're not sure exactly. He was assisted by a number of others, like Miles Coverdale, remember, who had produced Coverdale's Bible, the Great Bible. John Knox, who eventually leaves Geneva and goes back to Scotland and starts the Reformation in Scotland. And when he goes back to Scotland, he takes the Geneva Bible with him, and it becomes the Bible... Um, it becomes the Bible of Scotland. Uh, <clears throat> so, uh, number three here, Whittingham had uh, already produced an English New Testament in 1557. So he'd started working on this. This is Whittingham. And uh, he had started producing a New Testament in 1557 which was primarily a revision of William Tyndall's New Testament. Now, this guy knew Greek, so he's looking at the Greek, but he's, you know, he's starting with Tyndall. He's just looking at what Tyndall has. He's trying to improve Tyndall and so forth. He compares with the Great Bible. He was influenced by a guy named Theodore Beza, who was Calvin's assistant, Latin translation of the New Testament. Why would somebody translating from the original Greek 
into English be influenced by a Latin New Testament. I told you that before. The reason, remember, is because everybody knows what Latin means. So, if you're if you're translating along from your Greek New Testament, and the knowledge of Greek is not as developed as it is today. I mean, I made this brag last week that I know more Greek than these, these guys did. I only know it because we've had 500 years of study of Greek. And people who take Greek now have the benefit of knowing what 500 years of study has produced. And that's all. That's it. So, so uh, Whittingham, he, he knows Greek, but there are places where he doesn't understand what the Greek is. Well, he can go to the Latin translation by Bezu, who's a great scholar, and Biza, you know, he understands what Latin. Everybody understands Latin. They speak Latin. They write in Latin. That's all they do. They write their letters in Latin. They write their books in Latin. They, you know, so <clears throat> that's why they do it. Now, people do the same thing today. Translators who go over to places and translate into new languages, they know the original languages most of the time. Most of the time they know the languages, but they may not be experts in the language. So what can they do if they don't understand the Greek or Hebrew? Look at their English Bible. <laughs> they can look at their New American Standard or their NIV or ESV. They do that to see how to put it in that foreign language because they want to see, they, they understand English perfectly well. So that's, what he, that's why he was looking at the Latin. Winningham's New Testament was the first one printed in clear Roman type. Notice we saw we saw that sort of gothic kind of stuff, you know, that gothic type. Now we have this what we call just uh, Roman type today, uh, not that black heavy, so forth. Um, it was the first to use the verse division produced by Robert Estian in his Greek New Testament, and it used italics for words not in the Greek. So you can see down there at the bottom, you can see that. I'll show you a better picture later. It's got verse divisions for the first time. The Geneva Bible is the first English Bible to have verse divisions in an English Bible. So Elizabeth comes to the throne in 1558. And when she comes to the throne, many of these Protestants come back to England. They bring the Geneva Bible with them. They dedicate it to her. So here's the dedication page of the uh, Geneva Bible. And they dedicate it to Elizabeth, the Protestant queen. She's a Protestant because her mother Anne Boleyn's a Protestant. She's Protestant. Uh, and so they dedicate it to her. They're hoping that she will make that the Bible of England. She'll make it the authorized version, but it's not going to happen. That's not going to happen because this Bible has a ton of notes in it. And, you know, it has all kinds of notes that are very Protestant, very Calvinistic, somewhat Calvinistic at least. And uh, church authorities, remember, Elizabeth has engineered this compromise. She's trying to hold these factions of the church together. And these notes uh, are you know, just notes that, that a lot of people don't like. And this has a tremendous number of notes. It's got ten times the notes of any Bible it's had before. It's like a modern study Bible. It's like an NIV study Bible. It's a tremendous number of notes in there. Um, so uh, 
as I say here, number five, the Old Testament was a revision of the Great Bible, especially those sections not translated by Tyndall, so that the entire Old Testament was a translation of the original Hebrew Aramaic. New Testament was a revision of Winningham's 1557. So here's the first English Bible that really is you know, translated from the original Greek and Hebrew, at least at least it was referred to. I mean, they didn't just throw out Tyndall's work and the previous work, but these people knew the original languages. They knew the original Greek, the original Hebrew, and so they could consult all that. So we have a more accurate translation than we've had before. Now, it had the Apocrypha, too. Remember we talked about the Apocrypha? And you would think, well, these people are Protestants to the core. They're about as Protestant as you can get. They're about as anti-Catholic as you can get. When you read these kind of writers like Calvin, they speak about the Pope in the most negative terms that we would be even ashamed to talk about today. They, they don't have any sympathy for the Pope or anything Roman Catholic at all. But why they got the Apocrypha there? Why would they have that? He says, the books... They say the books that follow in order after the prophets in the New Testament are called the Apocrypha. That is, books which were not received by the common consent to be read and expounded publicly in the church, neither yet uh, served to prove any point of Christian religion. So they, these, these are not books for that purpose. But, they're not canonical books, they say. They're rather... They were, but they were books proceeding from godly men were received to be read for the advancement and furtherance of the knowledge hitherto. So they say it's been the tradition in the church that these books were read as literature, you know, Christian literature, because they were done by godly men and they have good morals, some good morals in them and stuff like that. So they didn't throw out the apocrypha, they still had it. Even though they didn't think it was inspired, they, they go to great extent to say these are not canonical books. They're not to be referred to for any point of doctrine or anything like that, but they're in there. Page uh, 32. I say here the Geneva Bible was marked by a number of noteworthy um, firsts that contributed to its popularity. It was printed in clear Roman type. That was easier for most people to read. It was the first English Bible to introduce numbered verses, each set off as a separate paragraph, like the King James does. You know, that's probably really not a good thing. Uh, I prefer a Bible like we have in the NIV, where we have paragraphs. Because the problem with the King James and these Bibles is you tend to think of each verse as a separate paragraph, so you don't know what the context is. You get a lot of bad preaching. A guy just takes a verse out of context and preaches it, and you don't really look at the context like you do if you have a paragraph Bible. But they did that. Each verse is set, set out. Um, they have uh, uh, they use they use italics to mark words which the translators added because of English idiom. You can see there on. Number three, let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come. So the words that day shall not come are technically not in the Greek, but they're understood in the context, and they've got that in italics there, which we saw, like in the King James. Uh, it contained very extensive set of notes. 
equal to a running commentary, one-third of the total pages. So it's a tremendous number of notes. And you can see, like, notes on the side there. There's just notes everywhere. Introductions to books and everything. So it has a tremendous number of notes. Very helpful notes. Uh, These notes were clearly Calvinistic and anti-Catholic in tone. Metzger says in an article that we shouldn't suppose that uh, they were overly Calvinistic, but they were Calvinistic. They were definitely in that line. And that presented problems in the Church of England because you've got Calvinists and anti-Calvinists. You've got Roman Catholics and Protestants. and So you're, if you're trying to hold your factions together, you've got to have a Bible that appeals to everybody you know, and keep, keep it together. So this Bible is never going to be accepted by everybody by the hierarchy in the Roman in the Church of England. Um, so this was a widely uh, printed Bible. I say here, unlike the format of previous English versions, published as huge unwieldy folios and suited only for liturgical uses, most printings were used in small, conveniently sized quarto editions and were sold at moderate price. So they were cheaper, they were smaller, people could afford them. Number seven, for about three quarters of a century, the Geneva Version was the household Bible of most English-speaking Protestantism. So people in England in the late 1500s and the 1600s, if they had a Bible, if the average person had a Bible, they had a Geneva Bible. During the reign of Queen Elizabeth alone, 70 editions of it were published from 1560 until it went out of print in 1644, at least 140 editions of the Geneva Bible were produced. So this is like nothing else. No, nothing else like this before had been anything like this. It was the first printed uh, Bible in Scotland and became the undisputed Bible of that land. In England, the Geneva Bible was the version used by Shakespeare, by John Bunyan, the men of Cromwell's army, and was brought to America by the pilgrims and other settlers many of whom would have nothing to do with the more modern King James Version of 1611. The pilgrims called the King James Version, quote, a fond thing vainly invented and would not allow a copy on the Mayflower. So they were opposed to the King James mainly because it's King James. It was, it was authorized by the king. Now, they were Protestants. They were Calvinists, and they liked the Geneva Bible. And if you ever go to Plymouth Plantation, if anybody ever been to Plymouth Plantation, if you go there sometimes, it's worth a visit. And they have the people there, you know, dressed in costumes, and they talk like they're from 1620. You know, they're talking and acting like, hey, you just step back in time. And you go in the governor's house, and he's got a copy of the Bible there. It's Geneva Bible. And I, and I asked the guy about, you know, other Bibles, and he just went to a tirade about that crazy King James Version, how terrible it was, and how great the Geneva Bible was. He's giving me the spiel, you know. Because there's a, they, they were just very strongly committed to the Geneva Bible, uh, these pilgrims were. Um, so it had a lot of marginal notes, very, 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 very helpful. Uh, Metzger says it was the marginal notes which, along with the sacred text itself, exercised the most profound influence on the theological and ecclesiastical history of England and Scotland for the next two or three generations. During this period, middle classes found in their family Bibles a positive and uncompromising statement of Calvinistic theology. It must be remembered that in 1560 there was very little literature in England 
And this was known to be a, only a relatively few. And this was known to only a relatively few. In such an environment, the habit of Bible reading had been steadily growing among an increasing segment of the population to which the Geneva Bible made its greatest appeal. Bruce adds at the top of the page, unashamedly Calvinistic in doctrine for a half a century, the people of England and Scotland who read the Geneva Bible in preference to any other versions learned much of their biblical exegesis from these notes. So when the King James comes out in 1611, right, this is 1560, 1611 the King James comes out, it, it doesn't sell well. It takes about 50 years for the King James to establish its dominance. Now, the King James is superior to the Geneva Bible. The Geneva Bible is the best Bible so far. It's superior to all these other Bibles. But the King James is better than the Geneva Bible. <laughs> but people don't accept it at first because they are so ingrained. That is, the Bible reading public. Now, Roman Catholics didn't read the Bible anyway. They didn't care. But Protestants who read the Bible, they were ingrained with the Geneva Bible, and they loved the Geneva Bible, and they and they, they kept using it for many, many years, and they didn't trust the... They didn't trust the uh, that Bible, so I've got that page there from uh, Woodcut, uh, page thirty-four. While the Geneva Bible quickly became the most popular Bible in England, the Great Bible is still the Bible authorized to be read in the Church of England. The Geneva Bible was so popular they were sometimes quoted by the translators of the King James version in their preface. So what we're going to talk we're going to talk about this in, uh, in, in a little while. The King James has an introduction to the King James Bible. It's not printed in King James Bibles today called the preface uh, to to the readers. And in that preface, sometimes they quote the Geneva Bible. Not their own Bible. (laughs) Yes, sir. Uh, Just real quick. Recently you said that the King James Version Bible is better than the Geneva Bible. Um, Do you have a quick comment on why that is? Because it seems the Geneva Bible had a lot of study notes. Well, I just meant the translation. So what you have is, over that period of time, in 50 years, you have more knowledge of Greek, more knowledge of Hebrew. You're building upon the foundation. You know, it's like, I mean, I saw this thing on Facebook yesterday where this guy showing a commercial for a 1960 Plymouth. There's this quartet singing, this quartet, and they're singing about the 1960 Plymouth, you know, a big Plymouth car. Well... You know, we would mostly say that a, 19, a 2020 Plymouth, they don't make Plymouths anymore, they? a 2020 is better than a, you know, we've just advanced. So the knowledge of Greek and Hebrew, building upon that, is just a superior translation in that sense, you know. And that's the problem with the King James only movement. You know, they think nothing has happened since 1611. You know, we, we're still. Those were the greatest scholars of the day. They were the greatest scholars of the day, but they still didn't know as much Greek, much about Greek as I do. <laughs> just because 400 years, 500 years, we just know a lot more about uh, verbs and tenses and part of it. We just know more than they did. They made mistakes. They just they're learning, you know. But they knew more than the Geneva Bible, so that's why it's considered. I mean. You can argue, you can make an argument, but most scholars who look at it say the King James was superior to the Geneva Bible in, in his translation quality and so forth. And it's, it's to be expected, I think. So here's the John 3.16 in the Geneva Bible. 
that brings us to the Bishop's Bible, 1568. I say the Geneva Bible was clearly superior to the Great Bible. And thus it became clear that the latter, that is the Great Bible, would have to be replaced. In other words, most people who owned a Bible had a Geneva Bible. And so here's the church recommending the Great Bible. It's the Bible. And they realize we've got an inferior Bible now. We've got to do something about that. But the Geneva Bible is not acceptable because of the Calvinistic notes, because of a lot of the notes and so forth. Thirty uh, Number two, one of those who opposed the Geneva Bible was Matthew Parker, the Archbishop of Canterbury, who had been appointed by Queen Elizabeth. No Geneva Bibles were printed in England until his death in 1575. Parker submitted a proposal to the bishops for revising the Great Bible. Parker himself became the editor-in-chief, did some of the revisions. He and 16 bishops, or men who later became bishops, who were to later to were to later become bishops worked on various portions of the Old Testament New Testament Apocrypha when the work began is not certain but the revisers were clearly at work in 1566 1567 so they produced a revision of the great Bible they obviously looked at the Geneva Bible and there's Queen Elizabeth on the front of the uh, bishop's Bible Number three, the, reviver, the revisers were told were to only depart from the Great Bible where it did not accurately represent the original. They were to consult Latin translations for, and, and other things for questions about the Hebrew text. Unfortunately, the translators of the Bishop Bible lacked the Hebrew scholarship of the translators of the Geneva Bible. The notes were to be non-controversial, Still, the translators ended up taking over about two-thirds of the New Testament notes in the Geneva Bible, as well as the verse divisions. So there is the uh, Bishop's Bible, 1568. It It was designed to overcome the problem, the deficiencies of the Great Bible, and uh, they naturally looked at the Geneva Bible, but I say on page 35, the Bishop's Bible was uneven throughout the translation. It's still got the uh, it's got the verse divisions now for the first time that we had in the Geneva Bible, but it's got the Gothic print and all that. It's got fewer notes, but it has some of the notes that came out of the Geneva Bible. But uh, because it, it, it's uneven because it had minimal review by other translators, like the later, unlike the later King James Version. So one of the ways that translation is done today, generally, say like the ESV, the NIV, you know, all that, is you have a committee of translators. And you have somebody, you have a, a group of people translate Genesis and some translate Exodus. And then you have a committee to look at those and try to merge them so the language is the same. You don't have... You have the same style. It reads the same. So you have a committee approach so you don't have just a unique uh, kind of translation of just one one guy's or one girl's particular idea of how to translate. And the problem with this one versus, say, the King James later on and other translations that followed is you've got too small a group of people 
uh, doing this, and they didn't have the scholarship on the Hebrew side. This is what's generally agreed. Uh, but still, it replaced the Great Bible as the authorized version in the Church of England. So here's the second authorized version in the Church of England, the 1568 Bishop's Bible. So this replaced the Great Bible in the churches. A copy was put in all the churches, and this is what they would preach from on Sunday. This is what would be read in the churches. It was revised in 1569, 1572. Now eventually the King James comes along and is the third one here. We'll get to that next week. Okay, we'll step aside for a moment here and we'll just look at the Roman Catholics for a second. The Reims, the Douay-Reims version, 1609-1610. Remember the King James is 1611. So this was right before the King James version. This was the first Catholic translation of the Bible into English. First Catholic translation of the Bible into English. It was produced by English Roman Catholics who refused to accept the Elizabethan Compromise. Just as Protestants had fled England when Mary came to the throne, so some English Catholics also fled when Elizabeth became queen. So notice it's a translation of the Latin Vulgate. See that right there? Not the original Greek and Hebrew like these other Bibles we're talking about here. One of those exiles was named by the name of William Allen, Roman Catholic priest, who founded a college in Douai, France. The college was moved to Reims in 1578, back to Douai in 1593. The purpose of this college was to train a new type of priest who would be able to handle the scriptures and debates with Protestants. That's a new idea. Before the Reformation, priests, most of them didn't know anything about the Bible. Couldn't tell you Genesis from Revelation, anything about the Bible. But now you've got these Protestants, and they're, they believe in sola scriptura. The Bible is authority. Now you've got to debate these Protestants. So you've got to have people who know something about the Bible, priests who know something about the Bible. So here was, a, here was the purpose of this, was to make a translation. One of the professors of the college, Gregory Martin, translated the Bible from the Latin Vulgate with the aid of his colleagues, William Allen and Richard Bristow. So... Remember, this is a translation from the Latin Vulgate. It was a translation from the Latin Vulgate because it had been made the one authoritative edition inspired and errant of the Bible in the Roman Catholic Church by the Council of Trent in 1546. So remember the Protestant Reformation, Luther 1516, Calvin and all that. The the Catholics reacted to that with a council called the Council of Trent. And in that council, they denounced all the Protestant doctrines, justification by faith. They said, if you if you believe in justification by faith alone, you're going to spend eternity in hell. That's what the Council of Trent says. So they denounced all the all the Protestant doctrines, justification by faith and eternal security, everything, anything, any Protestant doctrine. And uh, they made the Latin Vulgate the authorized version, the inspired author, not, not the Hebrew, not the Greek. You're not allowed to translate from the Hebrew and Greek. Only translate from the Latin Vulgate. They did look at the original languages where to put the definite article in. Latin has no article like the. 
or A. It has no definite article in it in Latin. So you've got to figure out sometimes where do you put that in. They did consult for that. Number four, the Old Testament was translated first and the New Testament was produced between 1578 and 1870. It was published first. At Reims in 1582, the Old Testament was published at Douay in 1609-1610. So the New Testament was published first, not translated first. There's the New Testament. Here's the 1609-1610 Old and New Testament. Notice it's got the verse divisions and so forth. The reason for this translation was that it is not a desire to make the word of God accessible to all men in their common language. The Roman Catholic Church did not believe that people should be reading the Bibles. They didn't want Christians, they didn't want their, their Roman Catholic people to read the Bible. It would confuse them. They didn't want that. It was a tool for refuting Protestants who were constantly appealing to Scripture. The problem is when you debate a Protestant, and he quotes the Bible in English. If you're a Roman Catholic, you've got to translate from the Vulgate in your mind back into English to say something to refute him. So what we need is, if we're going to debate these, we need a translation of the Latin Vulgate in English so we can debate easily. That's the purpose of this. That was the only purpose of it. Here's the uh, John 3.16. Last thing here, number six. The Douay Reims New Testament was revised in 1749 by an English bishop, Richard Challoner, and the Old Testament in 1750. He continued to revise it. So we'll look at this chart here again in the future because you got the Douay Reims, the first Roman Catholic English Bible. It was revised by a bishop, 1749-1750, English bishop, translated from the Latin Vulgate, Eventually, in 1941, a New Testament is produced. A new revision is produced called the Confraternity New Testament. If you've ever been around Roman Catholics or looked at their house, seen a Bible, you open up the Bible, it might say Confraternity New Testament. It's talking about the revision of this. In 1943, the Pope permits translation from the original languages. So up until this time, you couldn't translate from anything but the Latin Vulgate. And they finally produced, we'll talk about how this works out, a new, te- a, new, a new American Bible. That's not the New American Standard Bible. That's the New American Bible. That's a Roman Catholic Bible in 1970. All right. Thank you so much for staying with me. And uh, next time, it's the King James Version. All right? Lord willing. Unless the uh, virus uh, gets us. <laughs> Thanks.